Father, we do thank you for this time that we can come together to study your word. We thank you that we can uh, have your word to give us light, that we can understand uh, our experience, understand what goes on in the world around us, because we have your revelation to clarify these things for us, that we are not thrown back on our, our limited experience, on our emotions, our feelings, our our own perceptions, but that we have your word to give us absolute truth. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that we can uh, put them into uh, practice in our own lives, learning to uh, grow, to advance, to mature spiritually, learning to reflect your glory in our lives. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we continue this evening with our study on salvation. Now, what we've done so far in the last ten hours of this is to focus on what God did in accomplishing our salvation. And this evening, in our eleventh hour of this, we're going to answer, look at a question that is one that that perplexes many people. I have a hard time relating this personally, I, probably because I was always taught eternal security, and for a number of other reasons, I just never questioned my salvation. I never wondered, oh, how do I know if I'm saved? How can I be sure if I'm saved? How do I know that God's going to save me? You know, I'm just, by personality type, I'm not this sort of self-absorbed, introspective kind of person that gets all wrapped around the axle about different things. But I do know that this really bothers some people, and there are numerous denominations and churches that teach that people can lose their salvation and that uh, you don't know if you're really saved unless you have certain overt evidence in your life, and that the way you know you're saved is because you live a certain way, or you don't commit certain sins, and you are, you have certain positive characteristics in your life. And so there are so many people who, rather than putting their focus on what God says in his word, they're constantly examining their own life to see if they're worthy enough to be saved, whether or not they're still living in the faith, and that just breeds a lot of... Uh, uh, self-absorption, it, it breeds guilt, it breeds uh, a lot of various problems that hinder a person's spiritual life. So we want to look at what the Bible says about our security and salvation. Is it true that once saved, always saved? Is there or could there be some sin that we could commit that would be either at one point in time or just a pattern of sin that is so great that God would uh, not save us. So this is called eternal security that the believer is saved. And it's clear from the scripture that the believer is eternally secure once he is saved. So we'll begin with a simple definition of the doctrine of eternal security. Point number one. The work of God, eternal security is defined as the work of God toward the believer at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, which guarantees that God's free gift of salvation is eternal and cannot be lost, terminated, abrogated, nullified, or reversed by any thought, act, or change of belief in the person saved. Now, that's a mouthful. I want to read it again for those of you who are listening on tape or over the Internet. Don't have it up on the board. It's the work of God toward the believer at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. Now, I'm going to stop there. That's the first clause. 
first independent clause. It's the work of God. Security is God's work. It's not our work. Salvation is God's work. It's not our work. I'm going to say this again and again. If we do anything to save ourselves or if we do are responsible to do anything to maintain our salvation, then we have introduced works or our own merit into the equation of salvation. Salvation is completely of God, by God, and it is what he does for the believer. It happens at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. Remember, faith is the means by which we appropriate salvation. We're going to come back next time and talk about what faith is. That's a totally different subject that is one that has uh, some people very confused. But faith is not a work. Faith is a focus on the work of Christ. The merit of salvation can go in one of three places. The merit can be ours because of faith, but the Bible never uses that phraseology because of faith. The merit can be based on the object of faith, which is Jesus Christ. And that's what we believe, that Jesus Christ paid all the penalty for sin, for every sin in human history at the cross. Or the merit can be split between man and God. But when the merit is split, then man becomes, to whatever degree it's split, becomes partially responsible for his own salvation. And as we have seen, nothing man can do can possibly merit God's approval. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. So it, at the instant of faith alone, in Christ alone, it is God that, justifi- that imputes righteousness to us. It is God that justifies us. It is God, the Holy Spirit, who creates and simultaneously imparts to us a, new na- a human spirit, a new nature that is created in truth, righteousness, and holiness. So because of all of the work that God does for the believer at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, it guarantees, because it's God's work and not our work, that God's free gift of salvation is eternal and cannot be lost, terminated, abrogated, nullified, or reversed by any thought, act, or change of belief in the person saved. Now, I say any thought because that would cover any mental attitude sin, any act, that is, any overt sin, or any change of belief. Ten minutes after you put your faith alone in Christ alone, theoretically, you can say, well, what a fool I am. I don't believe that anymore. Well, it's too late. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone at one instant in time, and you are saved. See, the point is that Man does nothing to earn or deserve or merit the free gift of salvation. It's a free gift. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We do nothing to merit it. And because we do nothing to merit it, because Christ did everything, then we can do nothing to lose it. We did nothing to get it. We can do nothing to lose it. Whenever you hear anybody say that you can do something to lose that salvation, somewhere hidden in their understanding of salvation is works. You may not see it. They may say faith is by, uh, I mean, salvation is by faith alone. But if you can lose your salvation, then that means you're doing something to get it or, or keep it. And that is works. God doesn't give things with strings attached. As we're going to see, this is based on God and his character and his integrity. He doesn't give with, with hidden clauses in the contract. He doesn't have fine print down at the bottom. 
He gives unconditionally, no strings attached, and he does not take back what he once gives. Eternal security is defined then as an unbreakable relationship based on the integrity of God, that is, his perfect righteousness and justice and his immeasurable love. And it is an an unbreakable relationship because God's character is what keeps it secure, not our character. And since security rests on God's promise and his integrity, it does not depend on our faithfulness. It doesn't depend on our feelings. It doesn't depend on our integrity or our behavior in any way. So many people wake up and they just don't feel saved. They're, they're overwhelmed by guilt. They commit some sin that, that shocks them or some sin that they're told is, is, is extremely evil. And they wonder how God could love them. And they don't realize that they can't be any more evil and any more heinous and any more unrighteous than they were when Christ died on the cross for them. There's no sin that you can go out and commit tomorrow that would make you any more evil than you were the day you were born. And that evil is due, as we have seen, to the imputation of Adam's original sin and that sin nature that we're born with. It's not a matter, uh, the only difference between your sinfulness and Lucifer's sinfulness is a matter of degree, not kind. And because he has, he's more intelligent than any of us and has certain capabilities that are greater than ours, that means that his evil is expressed in ways far worse than, than we can express it. But for the most part, if any of us were given those abilities, we could we would could be and would be just as evil as any fallen angel or any demon. It's not a matter of of uh, the qual the uh, uh, qu- the quality of our sinfulness. It's just evil is evil, and there are no degrees. So security rests on God's promise, not our feelings or our behavior. Now, that's just by way of definition so we know what we're talking about in the doctrine of eternal security. The second point focuses on the problem, because there is a problem in understanding eternal security. Now, I've phrased it in two ways because there are actually two different extremes. I may have to go to the overhead here to give a little further clarification. There is the doctrine of eternal security, and we'll put that with an ES right here in the middle. On one side, you have the Arminian doctrine. It's called Arminian after the founder of the system, James Arminius, although he wasn't this extreme. And in Arminian systems, such as Wesleyan theology, Methodist theology, some some holiness theologies, uh, some Pentecostal theologies, you can lose your salvation. And so this is a salvation that's that's not really a salvation. Because you don't know that you have it until you die. This is the same thing in, in Roman Catholic theology. You don't know you're saved even when you die. You don't have a clue whether or not you're saved because there, there's uh, it's dependent upon you in some way. At the other extreme, you have the hyper-Calvinist doctrine of known as the perseverance of the saints. And we'll discuss that uh, in a little more detail because this is where we're getting most of the problems today because it's expressed 
in a theological system called Lordship Salvation. And we'll be talking more and more about Lordship Salvation over the next uh, two or three weeks. So that's why I've set it up in this particular slide that the problem is either eternal security versus the perseverance of the saints on the one hand or eternal security versus no real salvation on the other hand. Now, to give you a little background, in the Calvinist system, you have a five points of, the five points of Calvinism, which are usually expressed through, through the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. The T stands for total depravity. Actually, the way they normally express it is total inability. Now, that's important to understand because that's the starting point of the, log- of the theological system is total inability, and by that they mean man is unable to do anything towards salvation. He can't even express positive volition, and he won't even express positive volition. Now, if you define sin in that manner, then everything else in the system is going to naturally follow. Now, we would agree that man is sinful and he is totally depraved. And total depravity means that man in every area of his being is affected by sin. The totality of his person is affected by sin. So he is totally depraved. It doesn't mean that he is as depraved as he could be. It doesn't mean that every individual is as wicked and evil as he possibly could be. It just means that he, in terms of his makeup, in terms of his self-consciousness, mentality, volition and conscience, each of those elements of his soul his, and his body have all been affected by Adam's original sin. So the T in Calvinism stands for total inability. The U stands for, um, you know, I've got, uh, I've got that wrong. That's unconditional election. Unconditional election. And unconditional election means that God chooses who will be saved and who will not be saved. Now, to be fair to, to those who hold that position, they say he chooses, but that doesn't mean they don't believe. He chooses and they're saved through faith, but God is the ultimate determiner of who is saved and who is not. The L stands for limited atonement, that, that Christ died only for those whom God chose to save. Irresistible grace means that God the Holy Spirit so works on the in, the unsaved elect that they will necessarily respond in faith. And then the P stands for the perseverance of the saints, which is what we're going to analyze under point number two, and that's the problem, the conflict between perseverance of the saints and uh, eternal security. When I was a uh, first went to seminary, first became acquainted with this, actually some, whoever, uh, the, the person who first explained TULIP to me explained perseverance of the saints as eternal security. But as we'll see, it is more than eternal security. The Westminster Confession of Faith is the primary doctrinal statement that was formulated by the uh, Presbyterians, by the Reformed theologians in England in the 17th century. It is the standard Presbyterian, Orthodox Presbyterian uh, doctrinal statement. And in that doctrinal statement, they uh, define perseverance as they whom God hath accepted in his beloved effectually called, that's irresistible grace, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit 
can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace. State of grace was their term for salvation. Now, we would agree with that, that that those whom God has accepted in Christ cannot totally or finally fall away from salvation. But it goes on to say, but they shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. And it says, but shall certainly, and the the verb, I mean, the subject of the verb there is not God, but the individual, they whom God hath accepted. That first word there is the subject of the verb persevere. They shall certainly persevere. And that puts the emphasis on the individual and not on God. This is made clear in a systematic theology that we had to read in, in seminary. In many ways it's a good theology, but it is much more Calvinistic and Reformed than than uh, we would agree with, by Louis Burkhoff. And in his systematic theology, he says, the doctrine of perseverance requires careful statement, especially in view of the fact that the term perseverance of the saints is liable to misunderstanding. We should guard against the possible misunderstanding that this perseverance is regarded as an inherent property of the believer or as a continuous activity of man, by means of which he perseveres in the way of salvation. See, Burkhoff recognizes a problem. He says you have to guard against making man the one who perseveres. Now, that's a positive statement. But then you have a man named A.W. Pink who defined perseverance this way. God preserves his people in this world through their perseverance. Okay? And that is how most lordship people would define perseverance. It is not God who preserves you, but you who persevere yourself. So this is really how it is expressed and handled by a number of people. Arthur Pink is one of them. Uh, R.C. Sproul is another, and there's a number. Uh, John MacArthur is another. The problem in the in this formulation is that it is man who keeps himself, not God, ultimately. It puts the focus on man, not on God. It emphasizes good works as the basis for assurance. How do you know you're saved? You say you believed in Christ, but how do you know you you really believed? Well, if you don't have the works that are consistent with true faith, then maybe it wasn't saving faith. That's why next time we're going to come back and look at this issue. Is there such a thing as a head faith and a heart faith? Can you have a faith in Christ that doesn't save? Which is where they usually end up in their in their teaching. So it puts the focus on man, emphasizes good works and fruit as the basis for assurance, and it doesn't give proper attention to the distinction of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. That believers gain rewards and lose rewards. The problem, on the other hand, with the Arminian position is that it minimizes the God's work in justification and imputation, and it actually minimizes sin. You know, they make a big deal about sin, but it actually minimizes sin because if you can, if you can do something to save yourself, then sin isn't that bad. But if you really understand how horrible and how infectious and how how uh, depraved sin is, then you realize that that there's nothing you can do uh, to save yourself. And even the little sins that, that we make light of completely violate the standard of God and that ultimately there's no difference between those horrible sins 
and the little white sins that we seem to justify and rationalize. So Arminianism minimizes both God's work in salvation and the total depravity of man. We have to always remember that anything man can do to lose salvation means that he that man can do something to gain salvation. Now, rather than perseverance, a word that we should use is that God preserves us. He's the one who keeps us safe, but that's not what perseverance teaches. Perseverance of the saints teaches that the way you know you're saved is that you have certain works that are uh, consistent with salvation. Now, eternal security is based on understanding many things about God and his work. The third point that emphasizes eternal security is understanding the purpose of God. The purpose of God in salvation. God the Father's purpose in salvation cannot be overridden. He has a plan, and he is bringing that plan to fruition. This is clearly seen in two key verses in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. In fact, there are several verses in Romans 8 that are important for understanding eternal security. I want you to notice on the overhead. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. That's verse 29. Who is it that's predestined? Those whom he foreknew. Now, are there some that are predestined that weren't foreknown? No. Are there some that were foreknown that aren't predestined? No. The same group that's foreknown is the group that's predestined. He doesn't lose anyone. Okay? Then he adds that they're predestined. That's their destiny. God's destiny for every believer. Predestination is not fatalism. Predestination is that God saved you, and when he saved you, he has a destiny in mind, and that destiny is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that's the process of sanctification where God is working in our lives to produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is the character of Christ, so that we imitate him. Now we come to verse 30. And whom he predestined, these he also called. So he calls those who are predestined. Is that more or less than those who are foreknown? It's the same group that's foreknown. So he calls those he predestined. He doesn't call any more. He doesn't call any less. He calls the same group. Those whom he called, these he also justifies. He doesn't lose anyone. He justifies the same group of people. And those whom he justified, these he also glorified. So those who he justifies, he glorifies. Does he glorify more than he justified? No. Does he glorify less than he justified? No. So God's plan is to take that set group of people who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and he glorifies them and he doesn't lose anyone. So God's plan is clear and it's based on his character. The omniscience of God knows all of the knowable. That means it knows every contingency, possibility. It knows every permutation of decision-making out to infinity. It knows what would have happened if you had decided 10 years ago to live in another place than here. It knows, uh, God's omniscience knows exactly what would have happened if some of you guys had joined the, joined the army instead of joining the navy. 
If you had joined the army, you would have gone to a completely different geography. You would have met different people. You might have married somebody else. You, if you'd married somebody else, you would have different kids. I mean, God knows all of those permutations all the way out to infinity. There is nothing that God doesn't know. He perceives in his knowledge, he perceives everything simultaneously, instantly, and eternally. He knows everything that's knowable. And because in his omniscience he knows everything that's knowable, in his foreknowledge he knows what will actually take place. And in his foreknowledge he distinguishes between the actual and the possible, what will be versus what might be. And he knows who and he has known from eternity past who and which of his creatures would be positive at God consciousness and which of his creatures would be positive at gospel hearing. So Romans 8:29 and 30 emphasizes that those whom God foreknew in eternity past, he established a plan for them to conform them to the image of, of Christ, and he did everything necessary in order to bring those whom he foreknew into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and will glorify them. Therefore, he can't lose any of those. So to say that you lose your salvation indicates that God's purpose can be frustrated. The fourth point is that to say that you lose your salvation uh, denies the power of God, the power of God. It, it says that God's power is not great enough to solve every sin in human history. We have to ask ourselves the question, is there any sin or any decision, any thought that's unknown by God in eternity past? If God's omniscient, he knows every thought, every sin that you'll ever commit. He knows all the sins that you commit that you think nobody knows anything about. God's known about them for millions and millions of years. God knows all the horrible sins you're going to commit that are going to shock you next year, next month, next week, whatever it might be. He knows everything. There is no sin, no decision that you can make that God didn't already know about in eternity past. And because God knew about it and because God is omnipotent, he is able to solve that sin problem. So God's omnipotence tells us that his power is more important than any human attempts to negate salvation. God is able to keep the believers secure. It's God who saves, and faith is only the means. Now, the problem that we run into in understanding the power of God in terms of uh, eternal security is that people have a low view of sin, a limited view of sin. They, they forget that sin permeates every cell structure in your body, that sin lurks in every crevice of your soul. The uh, Bible says the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? We, we want to think more of ourselves than we ought to think. We, we think that we're better and that somehow we can, therefore, uh, please God. But in God's viewpoint, there are no, uh, there are no variations. James 2.10 states, Whoever shall keep the whole law, doesn't matter how good you are, how moral you are, how righteous you are, and yet you stumble in one point, no matter how minor it is, you're guilty of all. See, God's standard is one complete, total, absolute righteousness, and if you just mess up in one tiny area, as far as God's concerned, you're guilty of everything. Remember the sin that Adam committed that created all of this trouble was not 
a sexual sin. It wasn't a moral sin. It wasn't a perverse sin. It wasn't a violent sin. My goodness, he didn't even use a handgun when he took that fruit off the tree. All he did was he ate a piece of fruit. Now, that doesn't ever make anybody's list of sins. But it disobeyed God, and that's the essence of sin. So what happens is we have a limited view of sin, and that causes us to have some a limited view of God's power. We must realize that God's omnipotence is able to overcome any sin that we commit. Jude 1.24 states, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, that is from losing salvation, God is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. And the reason we're blameless is not because of an, something inherent in us, but because God gave us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's based on imputation. So it is God who keeps the believer, and then we're told that it is God's, the Father's hand and the Lord's hands that keeps the believer. This, of course, is an anthropomorphism using a uh, figure of speech based on human form to communicate God's policy or plan. John 10:28 and 29, we read, And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. As a matter of fact, in, this, um, in the way this is described in the original uh, Greek, the never is in an emphatic position. And it emphasizes the fact that, that it is impossible for us to be snatched out of his hand. Furthermore, Jesus said in John 10:29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, emphasizing omnipotence. He's greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So the picture here is one of absolute uh, security and safety that nothing can abrogate the power of God. Furthermore, we have the continual prayer of Jesus in Hebrews 7:25. hence, also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. It's he is able. Once again, that comes back to his power. Ability translates to omnipotence, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Then in 1 Peter 1, 4, and 5, we read, To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. If we could lose our salvation, then how would we know that something was reserved in heaven for us? It can only be reserved in heaven for us if it is a secure salvation. And we are protected by the power of God. There's omnipotence again. We are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then Second Timothy 1.12, Paul says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard. Notice, he is able. That's omnipotence again. He is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. So the fourth point is we're kept by the power of God. Third point was his purpose cannot be frustrated. Fourth, his power is greater than any sin that we can commit. And the fifth point is that the love of God is so great that it motivated him to do everything necessary to accomplish salvation. God's love sent his son even when we were enemies and obnoxious to him. How much 
more will he love us as his children. See, the point is that he loved us so much when we were rebels, when we were obnoxious, when we were at our very worst, that he sent his son to die on the cross for us. If he loved us that much when we were enemies, when we were obnoxious to him, when we were at our very worst and most evil, how much more will he love us when we are his children? Romans 5.8 says that, For God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then Romans 8.38 and 39 says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor uh, things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us. No created thing, nothing in the creaturely realm, that's everything outside of God, Nothing in the creaturely realm is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul makes it abundantly clear that there's nothing we can do, nothing anyone else can do to break that relationship once we are in Christ. The sixth reason we know that we are eternally secure is based on the promise of the Son. The promise of the Son, John 10.28, Jesus said, I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. That is his promise to us. And if we can lose salvation, then he did not speak the truth. So to say that you can lose your salvation impugns the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a conditional promise. He doesn't say, I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish as long as they continue to believe in me. Remember, this is a promise that's from the same one who holds the universe together, Colossians 1:16 and 17, and that the never here is emphatic. It is impossible for us to perish. So we're saved by the promise of his Son, and we're also kept by the prayer of the Son. This is the seventh point, the prayer of the Son, which is ongoing. Jesus Christ prays continuously for each and every one of us, day in, day out. He is at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for you. There, not a moment goes by, not a heartache, not a problem, not a, not a test goes by in your life that Jesus Christ isn't fully and completely aware of it and praying for you during that time. Not only is God the Son praying for you, but also God the Holy Spirit is praying for you according to Romans chapter 8. He, they are both continuously interceding for us. But the reason we focus on Jesus Christ's prayer is because of what he said about that prayer in uh, Hebrews 7 and John 17:11. In John 17, he refers to believers as those whom the God, those whom God gave him. Now in 17:2, he refers to that one time. In, in verse 6, he refers to that two times. In verse 7, verse 9, verse 11, 12, and 24, Jesus mentions believers as those whom God gave him, and he's not going to lose them. Now, in Hebrews 7.25, we read, Hence also he is able, that is the omnipotence of God, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives, that's his eternal life, at the right hand of the Father at his present session, to make intercession for them. And intercession here is directly related to his saving them forever. 
in his high priestly prayer in John 17, when Jesus Christ is praying for his disciples before he goes to the cross. This is his prayer, his model prayer uh, that covers his ongoing intercession. He says to the Father, I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name. Jesus Christ's prayers are always answered. John says if we pray anything according to his will, this is the confidence that we know that he hears us, and if he hears us, he'll answer us. And so the point is that Jesus Christ, no one gets his prayers answered more than Jesus Christ. And so if Jesus Christ is praying for the Father to keep you, then you will be kept. Uh, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, thy name which thou hast given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name which thou hast given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that's Judas, the son of perdition meaning the, the, the one who was lost, that the scripture might be... Fulfilled, But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So the point in Jesus Christ's intercessory prayer for the believer is an ongoing, continuous prayer that the Father keep us saved on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross. So the seventh reason, or the seventh point under the doctrine of eternal security is that we are kept by the prayer of the Son. The eighth point, the eighth point refers to the concept taught in the scriptures of the body of Christ. That Jesus is the head and we are the body. For us to be brought into the body of Christ and then to be taken out of the body of Christ, which is what would be necessary if we lost salvation, would mean that, that once we are attached to the head, we have to go through a decapitation process. We're going to be spiritually guillotined in order to have, uh, in order to lose that salvation. We're going to have to sever the head once it's joined to the body. This is impossible according to the uh, imagery of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, especially verses 13 and 21. So for us to lose our salvation would mean Christ would be severed from, being, from our head. We would be severed from the body. That can't happen. Ninth, we are secure because of the work of the Savior. We are secure because of the work of the Savior. Because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every sin. First of all, we understand that the Father knew every sin. So because he knew every sin, there are no surprises. You're not going to go out tomorrow and commit some sin that Jesus Christ didn't pay for on the cross. You can't go out tomorrow or next year or any time and commit some sin that God the Father didn't know about in eternity past and make provision for on the cross. To say you're going to lose salvation would be to say that, that oh, I committed some sin God didn't know about. I surprised God. And he didn't pay, Christ didn't pay for this sin on the cross, and now I can lose my salvation. See, it has such a small view of God. It has such a limited, superficial view of God. No one can, because Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins, no one angelic or human can bring a charge against us. No one can condemn us because the penalty's been paid. The condemnation was paid for by Christ on the cross. Since Christ's death covers all sin, and because we have his righteousness imputed to us on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone, we can't have any sin charged against us. If any sin could undo that salvation, then 
a couple of things would have to be true. First of all, it would then be true that Christ's death did not pay for that sin. Or Christ's payment was not sufficient to cover that sin. We had to add something to Christ's death. We had to add our perseverance. We had to add our consistency, our faithfulness, our persistence. See, that's where that, that, that work sneaks in there that somehow we're adding something to what Christ did. Now, if if either of these things are true, then what happens is it impugns, it's blasphemy. It impugns the sufficiency of Christ. It says that it wasn't sufficient, it wasn't enough. It charges God's plan with inadequacy, and this is blasphemy. And furthermore, it places man's salvation ultimately on our own work and on our own merit, and it completely dilutes the concept of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Romans 8.33 says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And the answer is no one can, because God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Because God justified us, because Christ paid the penalty for us, the implication from Romans 8.33 and 34 is that there is nothing we can do to merit a charge of condemnation against us. Nothing can cancel the grace of God. Now, a lot of people think that what this means then is you've just given everybody a license to sin. Well, that's not a license to sin. It's it's freedom. Now, everybody's still going to sin because you still have a sin nature. That's not a license to sin because God still promises that there is discipline on the believer who sins. Even if he's forgiven, there's still discipline. There's still consequences to sin. That doesn't mean that... Uh, that we're free to just go on with impunity. Now that's the ninth point. The reason we can't lose our salvation is because of the work, understanding the work of the Savior. It's a perfect work. Then we have a tenth reason, tenth point, and this reason is that it is an argument from the character of God. We have to understand the character of God. See, when you don't understand the character of God, you're always going to end up elevating man. First of all, God is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He knows all the knowable simultaneously, and he always has known all the knowable. Therefore, millions of years ago, God knew every problem, every difficulty, every sin, every thought, every action that every human being would take, and nothing we can ever do takes God by surprise or takes God off guard. Secondly, God is omnipotent. That means that God has the ability to do whatever is necessary to bring his plan to completion. So if God is omnipotent, he can do whatever he needs to do in order to solve the problem that he knows in his omniscience. So when you combine God's omniscience with his omnipotence, you understand that God knew all the facts, knew every single sin. So he was able to devise a plan so great and vast and detailed that it included the solution to not only every sin we would ever commit, but every sin that any human being in history would ever commit. No sin is undealt with, no sin surprises God, and no sin is too great for the plan of God. To say that we can think, say, or do something to lose salvation, to do anything that would jeopardize our salvation, is nothing more than human arrogance and blasphemy. The eleventh point, another reason, is to think that you can help God in any way is arrogance and reverses the plan of salvation. God saves us, we don't save ourselves. 
that's the whole point in Galatians chapter 1, 5 and following. It's faith plus anything nullifies faith. Because faith puts all of the emphasis on the merit of Christ, not on the merit of man. Man's failure can't cancel God's integrity. Man's sin can't nullify God's grace. And man's weakness can't negate God's power. What happens is in arrogance and self-righteousness, many Christians are just afraid that somebody else is going to get away with some sin I wish I could get away with. They're small-minded people. And there are a lot of Christians who are very narrow-minded and small-minded. Twelfth reason. Twelfth point. When you understand the dynamics and complexities of what God must do to save even one unbeliever, you realize how complex salvation is. See, that's what we've gone over for ten weeks. Ten lessons going through everything, the complexity of sin, when you look at the, the fact of the penalty of sin, the, the fact of sin itself, the fact of the penalty of sin, the problem with the character of God, the problem of spiritual death, the problem of uh, our lack of righteousness, the problem of, of our position in Christ, I mean our position in Adam. And you look at everything God had to do to deal with each one of those facets of salvation, you realize how incredible salvation is. I mean, this ought to just, just awe us when we stop and think about everything God did to save even one human being. Because there's nothing in God's character that meant that he had to save us. God is not compelled by anything. He does it because he wants to, not because something in him forces him to. God, had, There is no reason God saved anyone. God, out of his own Goodness chose to save us. That's why it's grace. Thirteenth point. Thirteenth point is when you understand the dynamics and uh, that's thirteenth uh, point is uh, I'm jumping ahead here, skipping some things. Okay, when we understand the dynamics of salvation, back to point twelve. Understanding the dynamics of salvation, we have imputation, justification. And this is clear from Romans, Romans 5, 1 through 3. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That is reconciliation through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our access by means of faith into this grace in which we stand. This is all part of what we have in salvation. Our relationship with God doesn't depend on our integrity, our morality, our virtue, or our failures. It depends exclusively on His character, His holiness, and His integrity. The very concept of eternal security is based on the idea that it is God's integrity that's at stake, not our integrity. And it's God, remember, in the angelic conflict, it's God's character that's being questioned by Satan, not our character. We have peace with God because he gave us righteousness. We're justified because God gave us righteousness. Our stand in grace is based on not our morality, but on Christ's finished work on the cross. And then we have been regenerated. We have spiritual birth. To say that we could lose salvation would be to say that we can commit some sin that kills that new life that God gave us. And we have eternal life. And to say that we lose our salvation would be that that eternal life would be lost. 
So that brings us to point 13. The character of God means that God keeps his promises. Because God is immutable, eternal, infinite, and perfect righteousness, he cannot cancel the gift once it is given, no matter how bad the believer is. At salvation, God gave you the Holy Spirit. For you to lose salvation, God would have to remove that gift. That gift was given unconditionally, so there's no basis for removing the gift. The perfect integrity of God cannot be canceled or nullified by our failure or any renunciation by any believer living on earth. We can't turn around and say, God, I hate you. I don't want to be saved. I don't like you. I don't like the way you run things. I just don't want to be in your family anymore. You can say that to your parents, and it doesn't matter because you're still their biological children, and you're still in their family, whether you want to be or not. 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13 reads, Faithful is the saying, If we died with him, and we have, we shall live with him. If we endure... We shall rule with him. That is, if we endure in, our, in spiritual growth, we shall rule with him because of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. If we deny him, he will deny us. That is, he will deny us rewards and blessings in eternity. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That is, even if we are disbelieving and faith, faithless, he remains faithful for he can't deny himself. He can't go back on his promise to save us. And then we have the doctrine of the sealing of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit seals us at the instant of redemption. It's our guarantee of protection and salvation. This is in 2 Corinthians 1.22, Ephesians 1.13 and 4.30, and 2 Timothy 2.19. In Ephesians 1.13 we read, in whom, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, which is common grace giving the gospel to unbelievers, in whom, when you believed, efficacious grace, God the Father took your, your faith, the faith of a spiritually dead person, and made it effective for salvation, you were also sealed by means of the Holy Spirit. This is a signature guarantee of the Holy Spirit. In the ancient world, this was like a brand out west on cattle. It indicated ownership. And once we are saved, then this signature of God is placed on us, a sign of his ownership, that we are his. That can never be removed. I often use the illustration of branding because in the old west, what would happen when rustlers would come along is that they would take a cinch ring out of a saddle and they'd heat it up in the fire, and they would change a brand. And if they were good at it, then you would come along and they would, they would take a, a rock and R brand and, or they would make it a circle B brand. And you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. The only way you could tell the difference is that you, when that cow or that bull was killed, when you skinned it out, you'd turn the hide over and you could see only then that the brand had been changed. And that's the way it happens with a lot of believers, is that they get into carnality and reversionism, and they look like an unbeliever. And it's not until they die that you realize that that horrible, sinful, carnal person was actually a child of God and is going to spend eternity in heaven. Ephesians 4.30 says, Stop grieving the Holy Spirit of God by whom you have been sealed to the day of redemption. 
that sealing indicates that we are owned and possessed by God and it is maintained until the day of the rapture. And then the 15th point, well, I'll add two, I added two more this afternoon. 15th point, our position in Christ protects us, Romans 8:38 and 39. It is that love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Because we are in Him, we have His righteousness. We are accepted in Christ forever. We share His destiny. We share His election and we share His sanctification. So all of those are ours in Christ and they cannot be reversed. 16th point, if we lost our salvation, God would have to take back his gift of the Holy Spirit, and God does not give the Holy Spirit or any other gift with strings attached. Point number 17, then how do we know we're saved? Well, there's two bases for our assurance, and there's a difference between eternal security and assurance. Eternal security is the objective doctrine of what the Bible teaches, that once you are saved, you can never lose it. It is an irreversible process. Our grounds of assurance are, first of all, the promise of God in Scripture. How do you know you're saved? Because the Bible says so. Karl Barth was a father of neo-orthodoxy, and his theology was terribly suspect in places, but one day somebody asked him to summarize the message of the Bible, and he thought a minute, and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that puts the point right where the emphasis should be on what the Bible says. I don't know if any of you watched uh, Jerry Falwell was Phil Donahue's guest last night. And uh, he did a great job. He quoted a number of scriptures when he, when, he, when he could, when he was answering questions. He was very relaxed and handled himself well, gave the gospel, made the gospel clear several times. But the only thing I faulted him on is many times that he got hostile questions from people who said, how can you say that people are going to go to hell? How can, how can you condemn people for being homosexual? And he didn't come back. He would quote scripture when he could, but he didn't make the point clear that I'm not saying this. The Bible says this. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. You know, he, he, you, we need to bring that authority issue right out in the open, that the basis for our assurance is what the Word of God says. It is the objective promise of God, not our feelings, not our experience, not our doubts, but what the promise of God says. And then there's a subjective ground of assurance, a subjective grounds of assurance, and that's in Romans 8, that the Holy Spirit witnesses to testifies to our spirit that we're saved. Now, this is a nonverbal communication that just gives us a sense of assurance. But if we're in carnality, if, we, if we're bottoming out in sin, that we may, we may not appreciate that. We may be overwhelmed with guilt, and we may be quenching the Holy Spirit, so we may not uh, be aware of that subjective uh, ground of assurance. Many people lack assurance of salvation, for, and usually it's for one of three reasons. The first reason is that some people think they have to be able to tell you when they were saved. They have to be able to go back to some point in time in their life when, oh yeah, when I was 10 years old, I trusted Christ as my Savior. Now, I can tell you when I trusted Christ as my Savior. It was Mother's Day, 1959. But not too many people can do that unless you were older. I was six and a half years old. And uh, I don't want to go into the details, but there were some circumstances. And years later, I realized that because of certain circumstances, because of the house we lived in, when my parents witnessed to me, we moved out of that house two weeks later. 
and I know where I went to church that morning, what building I was in that morning, and that was the first morning that Baraka Church met in their present building on Sage Road. And so I know that it could only have been one of two Sundays, and it was probably that Mother's Day. And uh, and on that particular Mother's Day, I'm sure that uh, the pastor taught on parental responsibility to witness to your children. So my parents went home and applied the doctrine and witnessed to me. And I trusted the Lord and ran down the street to tell my best friend. But not everybody's that way. Some people hear the gospel. They grow up in a Christian home. They just hear it over and over again. And one day they realize they believe in Christ, but they can't tell you when they move to a certain conviction that Christ died on the cross for their sins. But that doesn't matter whether or not you can pinpoint the day. It's right now, do you believe Christ died on the cross for your sins? And if you do, then you're saved. It doesn't matter when you first did it. What matters is that you did it. The second is that some some people um, question perhaps the procedure that they were saved under. Maybe somebody with a Campus Crusade came along and said that you had to invite Jesus into your heart. Or maybe they were at some Baptist revival and they walked down the aisle or raised their hand or filled out a card or they sat on the anxious bench or any of the other gimmicks that churches use to get people to, to, uh, to get saved. And, and what happened is despite all of the clutter that went along with it that was wrong, at the very core at that particular time, that's what they were doing is they were trusting in Christ as their Savior. So just because you might have various procedures around that initial time that, that may be questionable, the issue is still, do, do you believe Christ died on the cross for your sins? And then the third reason they feel like they lack assurance is because they think they committed some sin that shocked them, and so they think God was shocked. But remember, God's not surprised. So our salvation is secure. It's secured by God and his work. It is not secured by us. And it's not dependent on our sinfulness or lack of sinfulness. It is totally dependent on Jesus Christ. That's why faith is without merit. The merit was performed by Christ. We simply accept it as a free gift. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to to review this important doctrine. Be reminded of all that you did for us in salvation. That you did everything. There's nothing we can add to it. There is nothing we can do to impress you, nothing we can do to guarantee it. It is simply a matter of accepting that free gift by faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand these things and that, that we might be able to communicate them clearly to those that we run into that question their salvation or, or have uh, difficulty understanding their security. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.